0: Welcome to Anthropod, I'm Tarek Rahman and on today's episode I'll be speaking with Damien Sejoiner, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Damien and I met up at the Southern California Library, this incredible archival site in Los Angeles, California, that's utilized by academics as well as local activists. We started off talking about the library itself, its history, some of the amazing things that have happened there over the years, and then we segued into his first book project, First Strike, Educational Enclosures in Black Los Angeles. The book focuses on public high schools in Southern California, considering these institutions as sites of enclosure upon various forms of black life. Our conversation ranged from ethnographic examples from the text to Damien's own fieldwork experience working as a substitute teacher in a school. In the final part of the interview, I asked Damien about the current political moment, including educational policies under the Trump administration and the relevance of racial capitalism to contemporary race relations in the U.S. So thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoy this awesome conversation. So thanks so much, Damien, for um, sitting down with me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And I guess we should start with this um, fantastic place that we're sitting at right now, um, the Southern California Library. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about the history of this place and what kind of work that uh, you guys do here now and as well as your your role here?
1: All right. So the Southern California Library has been around a little bit over 50 years Um, now in uh, Los Angeles they house um, a lot of archives pertaining to workers rights labor unions um, black radicalism um, issues on sort of radical movements of women LGBTQ uh, a lot of left sort of like left stuff um, that's here it's a fantastic uh, resource. Um, not many people, I feel, know about it in that context. I think it's sort of like a cult following, <laughs> like people who know about it love it, but trying definitely trying to get the word out more about it to be used as the, a vital resource for people doing research, maybe in LA, but then also on different types of social movements or the history of policing, for example, history of unions um, as well. Um, a lot of stuff on Black California is here also. Um and yeah, so it's fantastic. I'm, I'm I'm on the board here at the library. Um and Yusuf Omawali is the director and Michelle Wellesling um is over the um communications for the for, for the library. Um so yeah, it's a fantastic space. Uh, I've done archival research here uh this past summer was here for pretty much the whole summer, but I've been here a couple summers before that as well. Um bring classes down here. Um, there's course packets that the library develops and I use them in my, my class as well. Uh, and then, uh, they do awesome programming, uh, with both people in the, in who live right around here in the neighborhood. Uh, it's located sort of off of Vermont and Gage. Um, and it's the, the neighborhood here is, has a a rich history. Um, a lot of what happened in, in 92 happened right around, um, here. Uh, as well. 92 was the LA uh, rebellion following um, the Ronnie King trial. So yeah, it's just like fantastic work that's being done. One of the archives that I worked with a lot extensively this summer was the COPPA archive, which is Coalition Against Police Abuse. Um, And they they did a lot of work with the 92 gang truce. And so all of that documentation is here okay about all the energy and efforts people just sort of think it was like a magical thing that happened but um a lot of these organizations have worked together for years leading up and then years after 92 uh, to make that happen and there's a lot of critiques of um city planning and what should be put in place instead as well um so, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic
0: resource. Yeah. yeah. And I, I and the last thing I wanted to ask about, about the Southern California Library is, I mean, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of students come here to do research. You do research. Um, what about the kind of immediate community that you mentioned? Um, could you maybe just talk a little bit about you know, what you're doing in, in, in the more immediate neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, a
1: lot of it is just um, people in the neighborhood who are organizing themselves. So, so very often the way that the narrative goes is that you need to have some like professional from some organization come and help people get organized. And it, often, more often than not, is at least my experience um, from um, working with Yusuf and Michelle is that it's exact opposite, which is that folks around a neighborhood are already doing that work. Mm. And what the library serves as is like a conduit, like a meeting space, right. For mm. that. But then also, a way for people to come in and figure out, like, what, what are strategies that were used before? Yeah. So that there'll be workshops around, uh, like, 1992, or for example, like, with the gang truce. So that the immediate discourse right now, for example, is that we need to disband gangs, and there's a lot of gang, we call them a uh, gang intervention workers, so that people can get out of gangs, right? But when you look at the archive from COPPA from 1992, it was the exact opposite. Like the the way that the gang choose happened was to say like, look, we need to leave these structures in place because they're already organizing. Now, mm. there's some issues within them which are self defeatist in some ways, right? Um, or it may not be productive, but as a, a a mode of organizing, like it's already there. Like conflicts already worked out internally, mm. and stuff already gets addressed. Uh, and there's a whole system and governance of laws and, and particular ways of how that operates and they get people involved, like they can move the community in particular ways. So using that structure that's already there for a way to uh, create change, like so that was like the 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 model of of the the gang truce, which has moved so far away to this other thing now, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't seem to be doing anything, <laughs> yeah, at all in terms of what it's supposedly yeah uh, set up to do. Yeah. So when people come in right from a community and try to organize, um, there was a group that worked, but maybe a year ago and they came up with like a survey and they they took a survey of the whole community trying to figure out like what's going on with needs. When I say community like maybe a six block radius around uh, around the, the library about what's needed. And the thing is it's like only people, you can only get those answers readily from people who already know people right. in the community, right? So it was issues of like healthcare, education, um, job, job training, like all that stuff was sort of laid out in, in these surveys so um people are doing fantastic work around here and i feel like you know the, the library really helps folks to figure out like right, what's the best way to go about it and yeah. how does that happen
0: yeah yeah that's fantastic so we should kind of like tie this into your your book at this point um you know, a lot of the work you do here and, and i imagine um a lot of the like reasons for creating a space like this are kind of, I think, closely related to a lot of the stuff you discuss in your book, uh, documenting histories of uh, oppression as well as um, histories of resistance and um, trying to you know, create spaces where things can be thought of differently. And, um, and so in your book specifically, you're talking about the school as a site of oppression itself. And you're kind of pushing back against the idea of the school to prison pipeline, right? And this idea that, well, you know, schools are kind of crappy and they're just kind of funneling people into prisons where they get oppressed, and you're saying, no, um, you know, we have to start thinking about um, schools themselves as um, these sites of suppression. Um, and you use this concept of enclosures to uh, explain that. And so I was, I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about on um, the significance of enclosures for you um, particularly as they pertain to this project and then uh, the types of enclosures that um, you talk about with respect to the school uh, in this book yeah i think that's that's a first of all it's a great synopsis of, of the <laughs> book so I that. Um, I've, I've read it twice now yeah. so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um so maybe before i talk about enclosures I could gives a little background on school to prison pipeline. Absolutely. Which as a construct comes up in the late 70s, early 80s as a way for organizers who are sort of beginning to see like there's a problem. And our problem is they can see that this burgeoning prison apparatus is starting to gain momentum um, tied together with increased policing in schools. And so that was used as sort of like a way to flag communities like you know this whole thing about schools is about to drastically change um unfortunately that becomes co-opted by the state by the late 90s early 2000s and that co-optation takes place where instead of beginning to like map out the very various ways in which the connections between prisons and schools are known it's just laid out well let's look at uh suspensions expulsions detentions And so if you can sort of, almost like a correlation, if we can see how many people have been affected by these modes of um, disciplining, um, then we can look and see, well, who's in prison? Who's been suspended, detained, or Mm -hmm. expelled, right? And we can make these various connections. And so then, okay, well, let's just cut back on those forms of suspensions, detentions, and expulsions, Um, which wasn't what folks were talking about originally at all and i say that because when, when you have that, that that's that's the that's a quick fix right um and oftentimes schools were uh very uh sensitive to that critique and so what happened was it was almost in some ways worse because then you get schools instead of suspending detaining right they just do any everything in house at that point so <clears throat> students are still being uh, sent to suspension, right? But they just won't call it that. They'll send them to a room for the whole day so that they never leave the school sites. So they're still there. Um, but then also it is nothing to address what's happening with the teaching, which is very, very important because in many ways we think well, the focus is on like the punitive forms, but teaching, um, the teaching mechanism is just as, if not more important. So who are the teachers? What are they teaching? What does that material come from? What is the ideology behind that? All of that was more or less involved in the original call to look at this relationship between Mm -hmm. schools and prisons, which gets completely just by late 90s or 2000s change. And so then the solution for the school to prison pipeline, instead of being uh, these sort of structural elements that um, are related to the rise of carceral state. Um, What we see instead is a focus on behavior. And so if we can just control these primarily black youth's behavior, then we won't have to send them to the principal's office or they won't have to be detained or expelled. And so restorative justice, a bastardized version of restorative justice gets implemented as the solution to the school to prison pipeline. And the whole focus explicitly is on behavior. And that's sort of where we are right now, okay. which is a problem. And this is why enclosures sort of resonated with me. Now, I didn't come up with the term. Yeah, of course, enclosures is, is a old term. Um, but I'm uh, probably most indebted to Clyde Woods for his use of enclosures and how um, the phrasing of enclosures allows for... A multifaceted understanding of what's happening on one on one hand, right, and that multifacetedness is that it's both like a, it could be a physical enclosure, right, but then also you could you could talk about um, enclosures of thought mm-hmm. as well, um, enclosures of performance, of um, like what does it mean to be a, a, a boy or a girl or a man, right? All, all these things become literally enclosed upon, um, and so in that way. It's it gets at the nuances of what's taking place, right? But then on the uh, second point is that enclosures also allows for um, Black communities to be given space of action. And what I mean by that is that what I found is that most of the state's response was reactive to what was happening within Black communities. And, right. and so often with... Um, Analysis of the state or analysis of, in particular, schools, like state structures, such as schools, if it is such like a top-down model of framing, right, which is that the state is doing all of this action on, like, these communities who are, quote-unquote, helpless. Yeah. And what we just need is, like, good-thinking people to come in and figure out how can we help out these communities, when in, in many instances it's almost, like, flipped. Which is that communities, neighborhoods, are already demanding change. And they already have solutions. Like, we want this. We want that. So in case of education, 1950s and 60s, black people in these all these neighborhoods around us at these school board meetings are like, I want this teacher gone. Mm-hmm. I want this teacher put in. You need to do X, Y, and Z. This is all documented. Yeah, The response, it's all a response. It's a reactive response to the demands by black people and that's how you get this right these enclosures so in that way you can and for for me was a, a, a way to tell that story um without having sort of like this state model just sort of looming over all these people to see like wait there's something else that's at play why is that important why is the state doing this um that becomes sort of like vital i think to understand the framing of it. And I also understand the framing of blackness as well as not being something that's just sort of uh, toyed with by the state in particular ways.
0: Yeah. And maybe um, yeah, one thing that I like about your discussion of enclosures is that it emphasizes. Um, Kind of you know, what's already happening, and kind of the opposite of what you call like the helplessness of people, right? And that no, I mean this is actually a response to the power of people. Um, and uh, in the in the book, I mean, you know, I'm not I don't remember if this is precise your language, but I mean, I think that you, the what comes across is actually you know the. Uh, fragility and uh, fearfulness of the state itself, right? right. Um, and rather than, as you say, like this you know, top down force. Um, and if we could get into some you know, specific examples from your book of the types of um, things that are being enclosed at the school and the ways that they're being enclosed, um, just maybe a, an example or two from, from the yeah. ethnography. Yeah.
1: So, w- one of the things is um, the teaching of itself right not so much like the teachers uh the but what is being taught um and how it's how that's being taught as well so when you have um by the 1980s because of this supposed lack of funding from the from the uh state what you get is a complete evisceration for example of black culture and specifically um black music forms get completely like cut out of the school. So it's just amazing to see. Matter of fact, you can look here. They have um, these old uh, high school yearbooks from all around here, from Locke High School, from Jefferson, from Washington. And you'll see all black jazz bands, all black choirs, all black orchestras. Um, I mean, it just runs the gamut, right? And it's a black conductor because these are black schools. And um, <clears throat> that becomes very vital because all that gets cut out. Under the guise of a lack of funding, on one hand, but then also doesn't meet these particular requirements of state standards, which was you know a way that you can say let's cut this out of here, right? Yeah. Now that becomes very vital because those cultural forums have always been very important to Black organizing, in particular in Los Angeles. So uh, around here. Uh, it's like the the black music scene has always been very vital, mm-hmm. very vital. I mean, like Horace Tapscott and Billy Higgins um, all the way to right now with uh, Kamasi Washington um, and Thundercat who come out of that same ethos. Yeah. So that uh, Horace Tapscott and Billy Higgins with the establishment of the world stage over in Mer Park, um, that literally gives life to what we see right now yeah. with Thundercat mm-hmm. and kamasi washington and i say that to say is that they all were organizing around here so the music uh horace tapscott for example um uh had a band on a flatbed truck that would drive around these neighborhoods (laughs) right around here and just play music for the community right and it was known like that was our like literally you could go through and look at the archives people like yeah that's our band
0: Right. When when was
1: this? That- 1960s. Uh, George Lipsitz okay. in his book "How Racism Takes Place." Okay, he talks about this right about Horace Tapscott yeah. and and what was happening right. That's crazy. And he also talks about the fact that the LAPD had tabs on Horace Tapscott, yeah. um, and and how music didn't have like boundaries in that way. And so there was so while it was like a performance, there was also a type of way in which. Um, blackness was not legible. It was like against the law, right? So that the way that black people organized themselves um, was not, you know, there was no permits, right? This type of thing, right? Those things get, those restrictions get placed upon mm-hmm. black folks, right? But, you know, black performance of just being like with a band, for example, it's just like out in the street and playing and people enjoying the music in particular ways. That, you know, that becomes encroached upon because that's not like proper civil, Right. discourse or whatever else. but that's also very dangerous because once you get people together and black people forming communities in particular ways mm-hmm. that becomes very dangerous right that, that's like the old history of yeah. that and of, of black music being outlawed like whenever there's a slave rebellion right, immediately it's like get rid of the drums right? it's like <laughs> the first thing that, that, that goes right um, so the, the history of that for Los Angeles is very vital because once that becomes identified as like a marker like oh there's something about what's happening with black art black music black performance um, that's been pretty much it's understood as being a critical part of organizing for demands upon the state Mm -hmm. that just becomes like enclosed upon literally yeah to right now where I mean if you go to any black schools like that the music program is like in shambles you have a few teachers who are like really dedicated trying to make it happen but from what it was it's gone. It's all say like, Oh, we don't have any money for it. Right. Well, you could just look and see where that money has been transferred to. The state has produced a lot of money, but what the, you know, part of this is the buildup of the carceral state, both in terms of prisons, but then also what happens when the state spends so much money on the, um, militarization of, of uh, sort of the world in certain aspects, right? A lot of that happens in California with, the uh, um, these huge contracts being given into like, like Lockheed and Boeing Raytheon and Hughes, which are, you know, had huge plants here. And so you could see this transfer of economic resources. That's all taking place. And there's literally like a, an evisceration of that. So money gets taken from certain sectors. um, But then also you have good, really solid um, black teachers who begins like, you know, lose their jobs mm-hmm. for, for various ways and reasons and that changes right and that particular enclosure has had devastating consequences yeah upon um black youth so that's one um and then uh another is this particular way it's sort of related is that as you have particular channels that get um, enclosed upon for example with music um, or art different forms of art what becomes the only solution um, is like athletics in particular for young black men mm-hmm. and so what's tied to that is a very specific notion of gender performance mm-hmm. of what it means to be like a black man because therefore the construct is athletic prowess which on its surface has nothing like I'm, I'm, I love like basketball mm-hmm. and football and baseball right? I love all that right But the ways in which um, young black boys are disciplined on, for example, the football field of being like a proper man and what that means Mm -hmm. or playing basketball, um, it's all up to the dictates of like this coach figure, right? And Mm -hmm. that, that masculine performance is often used as a disciplining tool to the rest of your life, right? Like, these lessons that you learn here is going yeah. to transfer whatever, right? Yeah. And so that has become very detrimental because, A, those lessons don't transfer over, right, at all, right? Learning how to smash somebody <laughs> right in the face, <coughs> like, doesn't work... It does not work outside of that, that context, right? But then more importantly, it's all about extracting the labor from these black youth in order to advance the cause oftentimes for financial costs of the school. So, you know, I, the, the site where I was, they were very much interested in getting like this new football stadium off the ground. Right. But the athletes who were playing weren't graduating from school. Right. Yeah. And everybody knew what was going on. You know, they just keep them allowed to play for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, but then once season's over, okay, fine. Like they can go, you know, either drop out of school or whatever, or do Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so it's just it's a it's a vicious cycle that doesn't have the best interests yeah at all
0: music because there's some awesome stuff in your book um with respect to music. Um but I, I in order to do that I, I kinda need to first talk about this um incredible fieldwork project that you took on. I, I, I found it um to be really compelling um the approach you took to studying the school. Um you decided to work as a substitute teacher in the school and i have so many questions about that because it's um it's as an ethnographer it's compounding so many different roles for you um because you yourself um i guess we haven't we haven't talked about this but you yourself um were uh, a student from a similar school right yeah um and so one might say you're like studying your own group or something like that but on the other hand you're doing it as an authority figure, but on the other hand, uh, you're um, like kind of like actively resisting that form of authority in the way that you go about this work. So I was wondering if you can maybe t- talk a little bit about um, kind of why that approach was the one that you took um, to study this site and how you chose to go about it. And then like, I don't know, At the risk of this being a dumb question, like on an emotional level, like what was that experience like? Because I imagine that it was an immensely complicated one.
1: Yeah, well, I can say this: Uh, teaching, for me at least, and I think for people I talk to, it's draining. Like it's a laborious task that gets minimized very often. Like it's a very the way that schools are set up; it's a lot of pressure on teachers so i'll say that up front <clears throat> um that the book is not set up to critique the profession of teaching mm-hmm. Part of probably my, you know, my mother was a teacher mm-hmm. for over 35 years so i knew that going into it that teaching was going to be like tiring but actually doing it i was like whew, you know, some days i just come home it's like 4 35 o'clock and i just go to sleep yeah like i'm out until the next morning because i'm just wiped out um so in that way, it was emotionally draining for many reasons, right? So you, you start with that as like the baseline, right? Uh-huh. You're just tired. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then stuff <laughs> begins to compound yeah. on, on top of that. Um, so you're... For me, it was tough because um, students... Uh, like you, make, you form these friendships with students over time. And uh, for me, it was sort of... It was how I, I think, relate to people um, very easily. Like, you know, just start talking. You know, we start sharing ideas about music or food or whatever, right? Yeah. And then you find out, you know, like the stories somewhere where people are coming from. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, how can you make it, you know, to get here to school Yeah, with everything else that's happening back home or, you know, things that are weighing on your mind? So in that way, there's a whole nother level of like emotional labor not even so much from myself in terms of, like i don't have to do anything but i'm just now concerned about these students in very particular ways and i don't necessarily have the tools to even help them right at all like i, I can try put people in different contact with different resources whatever but i'm not equipped necessarily like as a like, psychologist whatever which is really oftentimes what students need like you know to deal with this trauma and unfortunately um by and large, within public education, for, in particular for black youth, like the psychologist has been transformed as a technique of, you know, um, figuring out if someone needs to be labeled uh, emotionally disturbed, which is like the worst label that you can put on somebody because it's sort of tracked like that. So things that they, you know, it's it's, it's it's very ironic that what could be a most help for students now is used as a tool the to state, you mm-hmm. know, to to track um, yeah. students in particular ways so that's happening and then uh for me personally, having grown up in the area um it was it was it was it was difficult to try to explain you know to students like well what's happening because you don't want to like crush someone's dream right or so it's, yeah. it's like a yeah. continuous task um but it was actually in some ways it was easy to do that to show. To demonstrate, like what people think of you, and and what I mean by that is, in one of the classes, they had to watch that movie, uh, Freedom Writers. Do you remember that movie? Who's in that one? I forget the lead. um, Who's in it? I forget her name. Hilary Swank? Is it Hillary Swank. It may Swank? be. It yeah. May, yeah, 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 yeah. The,
0: yeah, I worked at a nonprofit for a little while back in the day, and they also made them watch Freedom Writers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a popular movie to make people watch. Yeah, <laughs> well, the whole premise
1: of it is, you know that these kids, it's supposed to be based on Long Beach, right? Because the, 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 it's, quote unquote, based on a true story. Based in Long Beach, um, which is about maybe uh, 15, 20 miles, not even, not, not many miles, maybe like 10, 15 miles south of LA. Um, and uh, it's about these kids who are coming from these very traumatic, circumstances and this one particular teacher like solves all of their problems by right, right? yeah. having them write... white lady right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well which is an old, old trope erica Miners does a, a solid great job of describing uh like the the role of white women as teachers yeah um but so that, that's that's an old trope um and by writing down all their problems then everything gets solved right So the the students had to had to watch this. Right. And I was like, so what do you think? Like, what do you guys think about this? Right. They're like, man, their lives are jacked up. Right. I was like, man, it's really going through things. Right. And I was like, "Uh, you realize they're talking about y'all. Right. This is what this exact school where you guys are is the exact same school, because I knew the school that 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 uh, story was supposedly. Built upon that school yeah. that Freedom Riders was built upon was way better than the school that were wow. way better, quote unquote than I was teaching, right? So I was like, they're talking about you guys. Yeah. So it's interesting to show this juxtaposition about sort of like how the world thinks of you, right? Yeah. Versus how you see yourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On one, one hand. Um, so that's happening. But then also the reality of the situation, which is that, you know, I would try to talk about going to college, right? For the students. They're like, oh, what you think about college? What you think about doing this, right? When the reality is that college wasn't in the picture, not because they didn't want any form of higher education at all, but because they had real material needs. right? Mm-hmm. Like I can't go to college because I have to go to work because I got to help pay this, you know, this lease that we're on. Right. Or, you know, such and such lost a job and, or such and such <laughs> is on dialysis now. Or, you know, whatever happens, like I have to help out now. So college is not for me. So what does that look like then? Right. In terms of trying to assist in in that role um and it's even more tenuous now because of these conflicts where i'm trying to you know be whatever help in any capacity quote-unquote help when you know these conversations come out about my future and someone's like well i want to go work for some some apparatus of the carceral state right? yeah parole officer i think is one you talk about in your book yeah. which uses like <clears throat> I mean, which pays fantastic money, mm-hmm. right? And they have a great pension. Mm-hmm. How how do you counter that, right? There's there's no other there's nothing I can say, mm-hmm. right? It's not like well, work um, McDonald's, right, or yeah. whatever like that.
0: <laughs> or be a grad student, and make you know <laughs> right? twenty thousand a year to go to school <laughs> and get in debt, right? Like that's yeah. that's what you need to do, right?
1: So in these ways, it becomes challenging because what type of alternatives do you come up with yeah. um, where like honestly these are good paying jobs yeah. in a sort of social milieu where the good paying jobs are hard to find. like what what do you do right and how how do you work within that tension you know um, so that becomes difficult uh, And then I think you know just knowing um, what school should be, for me, was, like, the most frustrating part of it, right? Like, knowing, like, man, this is not what it should be. Yeah. So, like, every day going, like, man, this is crazy. Because, you know, these, like, brilliant kids. Yeah. And this is not what should be happening. Yeah. At all, right? And, you know, just knowing what other schools look like, right? Other high schools look like in the area. Um, And when I say other schools, other private elite schools, what they look like and what type of education Is being offered and the resources that are there, but also the level of care that the teachers display with the students, how the administration engages with parents and members of those communities. Like, and I don't even think those are good models to replicate mm-hmm. because they still are functioning off of very sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, like, um. It's the production of civil society, which is that just teaching people that you need to become like managers of the state. Mm -hmm. Um, That's still the ethos of of that, right? But, you know, we talked about before with like Horace Tapscott and Billy Higgins. What if, you know, schools are just centered around black expressions of art? Mm -hmm. Like, how would that look? You know, And how would that function? Um, Which would be just dramatically different than what we have right now
0: yeah so maybe uh we can like scale out a little bit to think about what's happening politically right now because i'd love to get your views on some of it um and maybe we could stick with schools and prisons for a moment um i really just i i don't want to essentialize trump here um because as you explain in your book problems with these institutions, the school, the prison, are longstanding. Yeah. At the same time, at least for me, it seems like this administration comes with a particular set of policies that are going to impact on these institutions in seemingly profound ways. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted uh, to know if that's something that you're observing, um what that's looking like right now and, and, and how you might view those those things as intersecting in, in this case. And yeah. I'm thinking like, for example, you know, like rhetoric around criminality in Chicago, um, Trump's support for private prisons, everything that someone like Betsy DeVos represents, you know, yeah. but I'm sure you're seeing a lot more connections than I am. Well, I think, so,
1: the tough part is to begin to try to Dissect like what's going on in terms of the layers, and what I mean by that is that so Betsy DeVos um, is a huge proponent of ending public education. Like pretty much that's her model. You go back to Michigan, and you see what happened yeah. when she was involved in particular schools, and it's kind of it's odd because she was involved in in a uh, in a particular school district in Michigan. But her level of involvement was to the extent where she intimately worked with like a
0: few students and then worked to like take them out of the public school system. Yeah. NPR just did a podcast on that. I was listening to it on the way here, yeah. actually. Yeah. Uh, exactly what you're saying. It, you know, yeah. Then they were interviewing people from this from this public school and they were upset about this. The fact that she came, you know, as a, as a mentor and. Uh, mentored the student and then took her out of the public school system. And it was right. like, all this work that we do yeah. uh, is apparently isn't good enough. Right. So. Mm-hmm. And the
1: dangerous part of that is that it's clear that the schools that the students were put into had a very particular ideological gear up, right? Which is about like working hard and that whole Protestant work ethic, which is like completely devoid of any type of politics of how actually money gets transferred from like generation to generation and what wealth is and like all that is taken out of the picture altogether. And it's, you know, it's a, it's also a very, uh, colonial sort of mentality as well. Cause I think if I remember reading correctly about some of the, um, the students that she worked with, like she then employed their parents To work in the various houses that we owned, right, and it's just like, yeah. So I'm like, whoa, like it's just like, what's going on here, right? Um, and like doing menial labor tasks, right? It's not like you're employing them to like manage (laughs) like property or stay. It's like, no, you're gonna wash all the linens, right, (laughs) for these six houses that we own or whatever, right? So that part. Has a old past, right? Now she's also a big proponent of charter schools, um, as well. And this is where I think to get to the level of nuance, which is that there's competing agendas to more or less in public education. Um, so you have very sort of quote unquote like liberal minded people, like the Gates of the world, right? Who would never come out and never has come out as being like a proponent of right wing policies for education. Warren Buffett. Um, the broads uh, here in Southern California uh, of the world, so to speak, um, who more or less align with a liberal project of what education should be. Right. And that argument would be, you know, like we're in a change in society. uh, The state structure works too slow. We need to sort of gear up for this new workforce or whatever to adhere to. It's an old model. Right. But to make society work. But then you have other, uh, interests like maybe the Koch brothers or even Trump, right. Who would say that no public funding should go to education. It's a waste of money, Mm -hmm. right? It's all about merit and working hard. And if you don't work hard enough, then you just don't deserve to go to school. And if you don't go to school, then you, you are the loser, right? That's it. Like there should be no public school in that way. Right. It's, tax dollars should not be going to losers. Like, that's sort of, like, how it's, yeah. as that broad generalization. Yeah. But then also, you know, like, let's take all that tax money and let's put it somewhere else, yeah. right? And we could talk about what that somewhere else is. Yeah. yeah you um, touched on it before, Lockheed right. Martin. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely, <coughs> like the buildup of the state. Yeah. But it's also, like, an extraction of wealth, like a direct extraction of wealth from the public coffers. Um, and there's also a critique about that. Like, you know, we can also talk about well, what happens if you do put more public money into public schools, right? That's not the solution either because in many ways that just, it's going to intensify these already sort of norms that have already been established. So, you know, we have to be careful about that. But back to this issue of like charter schools and the the restoration of public education is that charter schools, I feel like now have been identified as a model to take control of public education, right? And that, you will see that, you know, maybe the Betsy DeVos's of the world, the Trump's of the world, would be advocates for public education. But so would uh, President, <laughs> former President Obama, right, would be an advocate for charter schools um, as well. And Arnie Duncan, the biggest advocate, because you mentioned sh- Chicago, right? Some mm-hmm. of these like models of like uh, these uh, military schools sort of form like charter sort of network type of uh, modeling of education. Like we're really big, right? But the ideological thrusts behind them are completely different. So, what you know, Koch Brothers would fund charter schools. Eli Bro would fund charter schools, right? But the type of schools that they're funding mm-hmm. and what these charters are, are different. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like there's a larger meta struggle that's going on for the, quote unquote, the future of education. Yeah. And what that is going to look like. And that, that conversation is not really being had. I don't think, which is very important conversation to have, because um, with this whole notion of school reform and what school reform is going to look like, you have to begin to, like, parse out these nuances. Yeah. Um, otherwise, the strategies that develop aren't going to be of help at all. So that's, on, you know, on one hand, with charter schools beginning to take over and in L.A. It's huge now because uh, Bro laid out a call last summer that, you know, He wants L.A. to be like an all charter school, which is very, very important because unlike New Orleans, unlike Detroit, unlike other cities which face extreme financial or social crises. Right. Mm. Um, A crisis of budget whatever. L.A. more or less is like a functioning school district. Um, So what happens when you can take over a whole school district like that? Like, what does that mean? Like that's a a clear model. Then once LA folds, then it's like you can use that to take over the rest of schools across the the whole country. So that's happening at the same time that people like no, we're against charter schools for very explicit reasons. Um, and those reasons aren't really addressed, or like you know the platform form aren't there in large part because those reasons are locally driven. So. The reasons why someone would oppose charter schools in Louisiana may be completely different than why they wanna oppose them in uh, California, which is good, right? And I think we have to make space for that, that there's not gonna be a a one-size-fits-all model like charter schools is trying to adopt. The solution is not gonna be one-size-fits-all from state to state, city to city.
0: I guess, sticking with the current political moment. So I I know that uh, Cedric Robinson has been um, a huge influence for you. And I wanted to talk specifically about the concept of racial capitalism. Um, And I was hoping you could maybe say a little bit about the significance of racial capitalism for you, and then kind of thinking about our current political moment and what at least i perceive to be as a shift or an, at least an adjustment in the racial terrain of the u.s um i wanted to know if you find racial capitalism to be a useful analytic for understanding that yeah for sure for
1: sure I, so i think cedric's intervention right now is of great importance um Because so much of the conversation, for example, of like why Trump got elected or sort of like um, these white disaffected populations, like those narratives um, are important to tease out. But then also shouldn't be surprising when like more and more of like Trump supporters are not necessarily like the poor working class that were depicted as like, you know, solidly middle class. Um, folks who, to a certain extent, felt as if like their subjectivities or like quote unquote power or privilege were being threatened or ways of life, or whatever. Right. So to figure out like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, how how do we get to that point? Uh-huh. And I feel like using racial capitalism as a lens to understand it is like so needed to understand how capitalism organizes upon the logics of race and how. Um, this, these notions of difference uh, get heightened and played out, right? So, on a very like basic level, you see that you know Trump is a master of doing it, of reinforcing difference at every point. Like that's it's almost like that's his playbook. It's just to make that difference known and to exploit that difference for a particular gain, in order to um, meld whiteness into a, a particular thing. Hmm. because there's so, so, like, you know, the anxiety around uh, the economy and things of that nature, right? Yeah. But, you know, you can see that clear as day when what happened, uh, with the unfortunate shooting uh, that took place in Las Vegas in which was oh five 500 people got injured and I think, I can't remember the numbers of people that got killed, but it was just like astronomical. Yeah. And it was more or less like virtual silence from him on what that meant. Right. And these pundits were like, well, let's not make this political, whatever, whatever. Events unfolded a few days ago in New York City and immediately Trump goes on a rampage about like visa programs and immigration and, you know, making this political. But then also highlighting this difference between like this, quote unquote, Muslim terror. Right. Uh, Versus nothing. Silence. Right. And I think that in particular is like a straight way to try to unify whiteness in very particular ways, which often uh, gets sort of not necessarily discussed or talked about and how that has direct bearing upon like the capitalist sort of structure and the capitalist ways of understanding the world, which is highlighted by difference, right? I and mean, exploiting that difference as well so that um, these same sort of folks who will invoke that logic about immigration, whatever, whatever. And like, I'm a Trump supporter, right. Trying to say like, you know, we get, need to get back to the old ways of doing things are unwittingly, right. going to have all of their savings completely eviscerated, right. If Mm -hmm. this healthcare bill passes of tax reform passes, right. Like it's just a massive, uh, extortion of resources. Um, but all being sort of played together under this notion of like this American myth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Robinson talks about. You know, the myth making is so important to nation building and nation building itself is all tied up into the logic of the race and all of it's being sort of manipulated by these financial interests, which are, um, have no, like really don't care at all about any of this stuff whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting to see all this play out you know, right now. And I think right now is because like that facade is now removed and many of these uh, models of exploitation have been happening to black communities. Right. So as people have lost their jobs and healthcare has become like a crisis, you know, getting back to certain aspects of the book is that that's been happening, for example, in L.A., like 1980s were brutal. Right Upon black communities in LA Like absolutely brutal Like jobs were lost Healthcare Was just Went in toilet Education becomes <laughs> like You know Whatever Crazy yeah. But that The myth Of the United States Like kicked in Right Like oh these are just Deviant Black people The whole welfare Queen Model right And all that stuff And you know It's a facade in, in regard that As the build up Of the carceral state happens It's like you're killing This the social infrastructure and across the state, it's not, and this is where racial capitalism becomes very impactful, right? Is that these models of capitalist exploitation, while they target black communities, are not going to stop at black communities, hmm. right? They're just going to grow and grow and grow. And so I remember uh, back when the housing crisis happened, and I was driving up to Santa Barbara, um, and it was like late at night, so like one or two o'clock in the morning, and I was just listening to the radio. And what I thought was like a left wing radio station and they were talking about Hey, they they're gonna put us in prison because they're taking our houses, da 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 and then it very like quickly Dom because of the, the way the Reddick was going, like, oh, this is like a right wing station. Huh. Um and it was like right wing pundits and they were talking about how the sheriffs were gonna come and take away everybody's house. Yeah. And we need to get rid of like all these police, we need to get rid of like these prisons, right? And everything. Um, not realizing of course that, you know, this is what black people have been saying for like, you know, decades, right. That the first response of the state is a crucial response to any problem, any issue, right. Anything at all. And so those models are there and in place. And so, um, as you have these encroaches upon people's ways of life and as money is becoming like, this object of contestation over who gets the resources. Right. And so a lot of it is like, well, I don't want you to have this because if you have this, it means that I don't Mm -hmm. have it as well. Right. Which for capitalism and as an ideological device, like it fosters that, right. There's no competition, which, which Robinson says the, the encroachment upon that is a completely different black way of life, which doesn't understand the function of society to be that at all. So we're talking about like with Horace Tapscott, for example, and Billy Higgins, mm-hmm. I mean, Horace Tapscott with the band. And this is our band and the ways that communities form. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like uh, blackness is not legible to Western society in that way, because mm-hmm. the way that it, it does not follow a capitalist ethos of being. Right, right, at all. Like it's just the idea. Like you know, it's like well, what you need to be doing, you know, Horace, is figuring out how you can make money for of these people. Right? <laughs> you need to be playing this for free, right? Uh, you need uh, to figure out how can you put this in a, a nightclub, charge people 25 dollars, <laughs> right, to come see you, or like you know, or figure out how to put this on like your, your I'm, Facebook. Account. I'm sure somebody did that, or as many <laughs> yeah, times, right? Right, but the intent, right, the originality of it is a complete different one right it's it looks completely yeah. different it operates completely and in many ways it like pokes massive holes within capitalism like the logic of capitalism all together how space is organized right like all of that gets just like completely broken down um and so in many ways I mean, the state is trying to you know say the state i mean like the different arms of the state and a lot of that is, is articulated articulated now through like a carceral understanding right so like that becomes the major manifestation of how the state is organized um and it just comes down very difficult upon for black people to make that argument because it's not in those same framings like it just like how do you make sense of that when something that i'm supposed to so i'm supposed to do x then do y and then do z and then do z right and the black articulation of that is someone like uh, Sun Ra, like the, the the musician Jack Sun Ra. was like, I'm not from Earth, right? Like, well, what the hell? <laughs> how, what, what do you do with this, right? Like, how how do you make sense of this, right? Yeah, that's that's my position. Like, that's where I'm standing on, right? <laughs> what, <laughs> right? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't make any sense if you have a very, very linear understanding of like life and being, which you know gets into a whole nother conversation. But that's in black Marxism. Uh, Robinson talks about that, right, of these other ways of being that have to be enclosed upon. Yeah. And the only way you can close upon them is a very rigid, like, hierarchical formation of the world, mm-hmm. which, you know, is not indebted to Christianity in order to, order, ordering, Western forms of Christianity, in order to order the world in a very, like, ritualized logic. Because it's not natural at all, right? It has yeah. to be made to seem natural. Um, but there's all these other ways in which the world is organized. And, uh, the expression of blackness Which gets like Attempted to become muted Through like education That becomes dangerous And dangerous for everybody mm. Because these are our solutions Right yeah. To understand how to break out Of all these issues We're having right now Yeah Like black folks have been Going through this For like a long time Right So we need to listen mm. Listen to what these kids Have to say right The people mm. in, the, in the community Gotta listen To what's going on
0: listening to anthropod the podcast of the society for cultural anthropology i want to give a huge thanks to Damien the joiner for sitting down with us as well as mario's Faleras who worked as an executive producer on this episode and was instrumental in putting it together as a reminder you can subscribe to anthropod via itunes stitcher and soundcloud and you can also find this at callanth.org that's c-u-l-a-n-t-h.org There on the website, you can find out more about Damien's joiner and all of our previous interviewees, as well as the journal Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at CallAnth. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about the Southern California Library or even donate to the organization, you can do so at SoCalLib.org. That's S-O-C-A-L-L-I-B.org. I'm Tarik Ramon. Thanks for listening.